The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. This is David Paul with the Capital Stack Podcast. Today, I am with my man, Ryan Collins, who is the principal at Nora Mosley Partners based out of Atlanta. It is a venture capital firm that has how much under management now? Um, a, few, a few hundred million. A few hundred million. And they focus on SaaS, software as a service, as well as healthcare IT. Ryan is, uh, has board affiliations with Medics Infusion, Aunt Bertha and Upward Health, and he is a, uh, a really great uh, financier of early stage healthcare IT companies. And we're going to try to break down a little bit about healthcare IT and the healthcare system and what's real and what's not. And uh, really looking forward to having him on today. Ryan, how you been? Been good, David. Good to reconnect. Appreciate you having me on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Ryan, tell me a little bit about how you jumped onto the private equity venture capital you know, uh, bandwagon, um, because a lot of people think that's an impossible feat to jump into. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I kind of started investment banking and worked in kind of lower middle market, uh, investment banking for a few years, did that, went over to kind of larger private equity, uh, buyouts companies doing 10 million and up in EBITDA, um, at a firm called the Riverside company where I was, Largely a generalist, uh, but a decent part of my time there was kind of spent in the in the healthcare space, uh, doing kind of provider roll ups uh, a lot of the times, and um, was there for a few years. Uh, wanted to move kind of earlier stage, work with you know fast growing companies, and was that of, your first was that your first exposure into healthcare? I had done a little bit of work on the healthcare side in banking on kind of like healthcare consulting, so I probably spent a third to a half my time in kind of each of those roles on the healthcare side. How did you break into that? I mean, like, was that something that was just kind of pushed on to you or was that uh, an area of interest? A little bit of both. I mean, uh, I did have an, uh, an interest in, in the space generally, but also kind of um, in both of those roles, it was kind of as deals came through, who was available to work on them. <laughs> and you were always at the office, right? That, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I was usually around. Uh, you look like the guy life. that would literally, like I would push off my work too. <laughs> And that did happen. That did happen. Yeah. <laughs> you were that kind of guy. Okay. I like it. I like it. And so you then all of a sudden got a bug that you wanted to do early stage stuff? Yeah. I wanted to move, uh, move earlier stage, um, kind of work with companies that um, were growing really, really quickly and that you could, you know, maybe have a bigger impact on, on you know, changing kind of the growth profile of those. And um, went and got my MBA and um, uh, was looking to kind of, at maybe one of five cities and Nora Mosley happened to be recruiting at the time as we were raising our eighth fund. And so I was able to kind of join them at that point. How many applicants did they have at that time? I'm sure it was pretty <laughs> robust. Yeah. I, you know, and you I, were out of town too, right? So, I mean, like, it's yeah, hard to, I, hard to I, get I that job. Many exactly. But, um, I know it was competitive. I think fortunately, um, I had worked in Atlanta previously. Uh, Atlanta is a tight knit kind of finance community. And some of my bosses at Nora Mosley knew some of my former bosses from from banking and the kind of experience lined up with what they were looking for. I'd love to hear a little bit kind of about your transition from literally like doing LBO, buyout, roll up, financial um, engineering type ways of finding alpha in the markets to this whole qualitative cash burn um, type of mentality and venture and how you were able to get your head kind of wrapped around that? Certainly a, a, a change. I'd say the biggest thing is like when your role changes so much, you, you, you go from pure execution, dealing with lenders, dealing with investment bankers constantly, uh, building you know, highly, highly detailed monthly models, um, 
and, and to your point, kind of finan- financial engineering in, in many cases to um, hitting the road, trying to find kind of, uh, you know, diamonds in the rough on, on the sourcing side of things in, 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 this, uh, in this environment and um, doing a lot more kind of market work. Um, but, you know, I think some of the things that I was able to do at my last job have translated to this job, helping companies with add-on acquisitions, modeling those out, helping them on their building out the reporting capabilities. So there's overlap, but the, the roles changed. Um, and, and you how- do that stuff for your portfolio companies? I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I That's really nice of you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, uh, um, it, it's certainly increased over the last year. Um, I think you're starting to see a lot more companies kind of come to market and, and we've seen some of that across our portfolio. So they typically have never done an ad on acquisition before. And so we try and help them think through that. I've, I've once done that, you know, with a less financially savvy founder. And I remember building out this, you know, really, I mean, I think my, my models are beautiful. And isn't it like suck when, you know, you, you, you work so hard on a model and you give it to somebody and literally they appreciate it, like, not at all. Like, <laughs> I mean, like hours go on to it. They usually use, use it as a tool to just look at one number at the end. Right. Or find, yeah, find, find a bug across the like, you know, five, <laughs> five tabs. That's, that's yeah. fun. Yeah, this is wrong. So, uh, yeah, no, that's, uh, that's it. Well, anyway, so what my experience was is I, you know, I built out this great model, the metrics, the benchmarks, and he said, thank you. And then I'm sure he never opened it again. <laughs> and, and then he built his budget off of that and just bastardized my model. Like, you know, after that, and you just bring it to board presentations and it would just make me cringe every single time that's rough i know uh but we made some money on that one so that was good nor mosley's kind of series a right yeah series a and series b um of late probably closer to series a given how how big some of the series b's have been Mm -hmm. and so some of these companies have scale getting acquisitions kind of makes sense how do you how do you feel about that when kind of companies that early are doing bolt-ons you know sometimes for me like at that kind of stage it kind of kind of makes me worried because i'm wondering if they're either a are they are they losing focus or b like is there the market not as big as they say that it is or like you know dot 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 i think it like right after we fund a company if it's like in the series a stage it's hard for it would be a harder time to go do an acquisition i mean one i think they still kind of need to prove out their organic growth versus kind of looking to the inorganic side particularly if it's maybe a software or, or tech enabled services company if it's a roll up or kind of the strategy from the get go is to go acquire a number of different companies and kind of scale through that then it's a different story i think that's a little bit easier on the uh, services side where there's less of a integration risk trying to bring together two kind of software platforms. I think once you get companies kind of in this series B, series C size range, if they're doing well, they may have some competitors who aren't, aren't making it. And you, you might have an opportunity to kind of gain gain market share pretty quickly. So I, I hear you it, right out of the gate on kind of a series A company. If they're saying we're going to shift gears to acquire a bunch of, of market share, I'd, I'd, be a little <laughs> bit, I'd be a little bit nervous. And pissed, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, you know that that basically, I just that just screams that your equity is going to get diluted, and you know you're kind of sold a a mixed bag of stuff. At that point, you're trying to just make sure that they can help develop the go-to-market engine, and uh, that kind of the thesis that you underwrote to on the organic side is 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 actually there. Yeah. So tell me a little bit, uh, because you're a smart guy, right? Tell me a little bit. I mean, Nora Mosley is, is very focused um, group, I would say, you know, especially on the healthcare, healthcare IT side. How how do you go about kind of um, underwriting a thesis in the process that you go through in your head when you're looking at companies? It, it's a number of different factors. It's, it, it's, it's leadership kind of has, has a CEO done it before. It's not... Um, it's not a need to have. It's a, it's a nice to have. But if they haven't been a CEO before, kind of, do they have experience in the industry? What, what's ahead. the weighting? What, what what do you put? If they've been there, done that. What what does that what does that mean for you? It can maybe overcome other maybe uh, challenges in the broader kind of investment profile. So maybe you're able to take more risk on the stage of the company if the CEO has done it before, or maybe they have. A, a bit more concentration or a more limited customer mm-hmm. base, or there's other risk that you're able to take on if the CEO has done it before or has significant industry expertise. But, That's a good way to look at it. Yeah, just they're 
all of the different things you kind of have to look at holistically and and see if like what the broader kind of risk profile is. I, I think. I mean, it's 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 a combination of quantitative. Is this is this a lookalike product or is this kind of a new category leader um, growth and churn? Kind of you name it. When you're looking at lookalike products and or products that you know, might be like a feature, because I think about this a lot, right? You know, it's kind of like Ben, ben Thompson's, you know, bundling and unbundling of, of, of technology. And that's kind of really all that we see here is just distribution, you know, coming in with technology and then kind of breaking apart and building really deep features. So how do you think about that? Does it matter to be a platform anymore? I think it should have the potential, um, See, but I think I asked the hard questions, it, Ryan. You weren't ready for that one, right? Well, the, the hard part is that li- li- I think every single company describes themselves as a platform these days, um, <laughs> exactly. And, and so, part of it is like pe- parsing that out. I think um, to me, it's kind of like the platform thing is a little bit. Uh, it's not always apparent at a, a Series A stage. Some companies, it's it, it is. Others like. Um, like our company find help, like initially they're moving into applications that I might not have, you know, guessed at initially. I think part of it is you have to have like the organic growth, growth story figured out. And then as if that comes to fruition, you will find other applications to hold on to your offering or new products to launch or, or other verticals to expand to. And, and then you can kind of become the platform. It's hard to do that organic growth initially if if you're one of 10 companies in the space and you're fighting for mind share at your customers. How do you think about what a what like what defines a platform for you? Are you constantly getting the calls of people trying to partner with you? Ooh, I like that. I'm going to write that down. That's that's going on your quote. That's <laughs> that's good. That's really good. Honestly, I mean, that's if you think about like find help, they have uh, a network of social services organizations that they work with. And, and then they have a freemium model that has people uh, that are searching for social services and that generates data. And there are a litany of applications for social services data and utilization of those social services and referrals to those social services and people trying to uh, work with both the social services organizations and, uh, and Bertha now, now doing businesses find, find help. And their ultimate customers who are health plans and, and hospital systems. There are a litany of, of partners that are trying to, you know, access that data. And so they've kind of emerged as a platform in the space. Okay. And then when you're underwriting the deal, how do you know that that data is coveted? When you're underwriting, it's kind of a combination of how much are they growing or, or is, is the product sticky? And then it's talking to their customers, you know, is this something that you're using every day? Um, is this something uh, that you're using as truly a system of record? Other applications where you can get this from pretty easily and how automated is that data gathering? Mm-hmm. Got it. I love that, you know, companies wanting to partner with you as a heuristic for being a potential to being a platform. I think that that's incredible insight. It, it kind of comes about, like I said, it, it the companies that we've worked with that have kind of emerged is that it comes about in ways that I frankly haven't expected from, from the initial get go. Yeah. Like you didn't call it in your, in your memo. No, we, I mean, we, we underwrote to the, the organic case being a strong kind of uh, profile. And then there might be other opportunities in kind of adjacent market segments. But I think the, the number of companies that Amperth has been able to work with has probably surpassed our expectations. Yeah, this is good. See, this is what I like about podcasting is that I spend about half of it selfishly asking questions that I want to know for myself. And then the other half, like letting kind of people talk about what they're doing. <laughs> so, I mean, like it's a, it's a really good medium for that. When you think about healthcare, are there themes that you're particularly looking at or are you um, just kind of seeing what's from a stage perspective, if they fit the stage and then you have conversations, then you kind of build the thesis around if it's got growth. It's a little bit of both. I mean, we're constantly talking to kind of one, our different companies, but also our um, limited investors. We have some strategic limited investors that uh, in the health plan world and in the health system world that we talk to constantly, what are your problems? And that kind of helps us us form thesis, but it's also opportunistic. I mean, 
you can't drive every company that you identify from a theme to raise at a certain point in time. So you have to also be responsive to the deals coming in your door. So it, it's a little bit of both. Um, ideally, the way it works from a combination standpoint is you identify themes and then as, as stuff you know from those themes uh, comes through, that helps you sift through 20, 30 deals that are kind of coming in through at any point. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of just have some pattern recognition there in my view, kind of helps from a prioritization standpoint more than anything. And so you're, you're doing some healthcare deals. What are, give me one deal that you worked on from start to end and, and tell me, um, tell me kind of what excited you and how you underwrote it and you know, where, where it went. Yeah, sure. Happy to. So, um, we, uh, actually acquired a majority in a company called medics infusion. It, uh, kind of to your point around, um, thematic versus opportunistic, it, kind of came in from a, a cold inbound. So it was opportunistic from that standpoint. But we had um, been talking to some of our health plan partners and, and it identified infusion as a uh, an area of, you know, that they're having a, a hard time with from a cost standpoint. As we heard that from them and, and did, did some work on the space, kind of realized that, you know, costs were going up. A lot of volumes didn't need to be um, done in the hospital where they were more expensive than an ambulatory setting. While we were kind of thinking through that, uh, this door comes, ac- uh, this deal comes across our door that we we became pretty interested in. Part Do you use the- debt? Um, no. So the the company had kind of a challenging balance sheet uh, at the time, and that's kind of why they were looking for a new um, capital partner. And we did not use debt, kind of in the acquisition, um, just to kind of expedite the closing, and the purchase price didn't frankly require it. We didn't at that time. We've now, we've since brought on a, a bit of debt to fund and add on acquisition. Was that all secondary, uh, primary or a combination? It was about um, a third secondary and um, about two thirds primary. Okay. And did you bring in your own management? We brought in uh, at the time a, a CEO that we had worked with before um, who was based in, in Dallas where the company's located. Okay. So that's, but like, that had to be a part of your thesis, right? I mean, like you had to have a guy to run it before you closed, or was this something like, we're going to do it and we'll find the guy after? It certainly helped, helped us kind of underwrite the, the risk. I, I think we liked the space in, enough and kind of Medix's uh, unique approach to infusion that we probably would have closed without it. But um, it's certainly to our point earlier about like, how does it help you think about risk? Having a person that we had worked with before helps you maybe get a bit more comfort, comfortable to other risks that you identified in the deal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're a venture capital fund, right? Would you consider yourself venture capital or would you consider yourself growth equity? We kind of use the moniker early growth equity, which is uh, basically a cheating way of saying somewhere in between. Um, we I'm take- whatever you want me to be, right. man. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what do you want? I'll, I'll show right. you what I am. But it's, you know, it's, it's companies that um, have real validation, customer traction, um, and have been de-risked from, from that standpoint. But sitting kind of below the, you know, firms that are investing at the 10 million ARR mark where they've already got kind of the go-to-market engine figured out, definitely an element of risk to it. But we feel like there are certain kind of like product market fit elements that companies have figured out by the time that we invest. And you clearly, you know, underwrote a return of something pretty substantial, right? Enough to kind of meet your portfolio requirements for this deal. This deal is, you know, not as high margin as a SaaS company. It's localized. Um, I mean, like, how did you think about that? I mean, was, is, do you do a lot of healthcare services deals? Um, yeah, on the healthcare side, which is about 50% of our portfolio, uh, I'd say maybe a third of our deals are, are healthcare services. Um, and some of those are kind of traditional fee for service, uh, like medics. Um, some of them are more kind of value based and providers taking risk elements to it. Part of the upside within medics, one was we were able to get it for an attractive price, um, given the balance sheet dynamics that I alluded to, but two, it's a massive market and it's growing at a high single digit rate. And there's significant white space for providers like medics to, you know, build de novo locations in fairly quickly. And then when you looked at the unit economics, the cost of opening these these ambulatory clinics is fairly limited compared to other kind of healthcare specialties. 
and so there's a there's a massive mar- massive market to chase. There's going to be tremendous volume growth from uh, new drugs coming into the market. Most drugs coming to the market are specialty drugs, and a big share of those are are uh, uh, biologics, which medics uh, administers in its clinics. And then payers are, are shifting volumes out of hospitals and into ambulatory clinics where it's a lower uh, cost site of care. So kind of a few different favorable tailwinds and, and um, medics had kind of a unique model that we thought could, could scale pretty quickly. Okay. And, you know, just for the audience's sake that might not be super familiar with healthcare or pretend that they're familiar with healthcare and I fall into that category, would you, how do you classify on risk versus fee for service? From a provider's taking risk standpoint, the way I think about it is in the traditional healthcare model, doctors get paid for each service that they provide. And so they're incentivized to provide more services. From a provider's taking risk standpoint, um, they're paid kind of a an amount that is based on the, histor- the historical average of the cost of that patient or a population of patients. And then going forward, they're paid that amount and they are required to provide the amount of services to keep that patient healthy or improve their, their, the patient's health. And if they're able to um, provide care and improve the health of that patient um, at an amount at a cost that's less than they're paid, then they're able to generate a profit. Um, if they're not, they uh, and they have to provide care at a cost that's higher than what they were paid based on historical averages, then they'll incur a loss. And that's why it's called taking risk. It's an opt-in system, correct? Yes. I mean, providers have to to opt in um, to the program. Yeah. And and increasingly, they're doing so. Um, You're seeing more and more kind of uh, providers looking to do so, especially with COVID when you saw a lot of volumes and uh, go away. And so providers are looking to get paid kind of uh, flat rates to take care of patients. And if they're able to do so at a cheaper rate, um, you know, there's significant upside. Yeah, I can see that. But is there a stick with that carrot? If they decide not to do that, I mean, do the reimbursements lower? Did, like, I would think, I mean, the, the amount of logistics, I mean, for to get these guys to do anything different is incredibly difficult. So, you know, you're saying, hey, we need to somehow care manage this and work together to keep a patient out of the hospital. You know, who's 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 in charge here? Whose fault is it? You know, if one person drops the ball, we all aren't getting paid. You know, what's the stick? The majority of healthcare spending is still done under a fee for service model. And um, a lot of the rapidly. How much do you know? I've, I would say it's probably 70 to 80 percent still. Really? OK. Um, from, from, from a volume standpoint. Now, um, the, this is the providers themselves. It's changing, but part of the reason it's been slower um, to, to adopt providers taking risk is there hasn't been the stick that you allude, alluded to. There has been a slower kind of mandatory rollout uh, by the government, the federal government to kind of force providers into risk-based models. And initially it started as a... Um, Hey, you'll get bonuses if you provide better care at lower cost, or um, hey, you can just generate additional upside for yourselves. And increasingly, I think they'll move providers into taking uh, downside risk, where they're at risk for the the cost if it exceeds their uh, their payment. There hasn't been a ton of like stick for providers to get into it, other than the fear maybe of of declining volumes. The patient would opt into that, but that's probably not going to happen, right? Does a patient really know or care if they're a fee-for-service or accountable care organization? Typically, they aren't, you know, thinking about that as much or, or not familiar with it, but I'd say probably the, the greatest amount of familiarity they can they can think think about it is, some, is through like a Medicare Advantage plan where it's, in that case, it's not the provider taking risk, but it's really a managed care organization where the health plan is receiving the, um, the payment for the, the pay- patient's risk. Is there like a world where the government says, I, I heard this anecdotally, but like the government, you, you screw up in a hospital or you screw up as a doctor and your, your, your patient gets put back in the hospital, sloppy discharge, what have you, you know, they, they opt to not pay you. 
right? Because it was a sloppy discharge. Is it because the provider is saying that we're not going to pay you? Or is it because that doctor had opted into some kind of on-risk platform or not, or do you not have enough information? So is is the hospital is not getting reimbursed um, like by uh, Medicare or because of a sloppy discharge and they ended back there, there are, you know, penalties uh, by CMS that hospitals incur if their readmissions are above a certain rate. Okay. So Um, that has nothing to do with, that has nothing to do with the actual um, on risk it, it, it isn't. It isn't in, in some way like um, they both kind of fall under the broader umbrella of um, value-based care. In that, uh, the, the outcomes of the patient are um, guide the financial implications for the provider. You underwrote the infusion company um, to a great return, and is it doing well? It is. It is. They um, when we funded it, they were kind of just in Dallas, Fort Worth, and. They've now expanded kind of throughout Texas into Midland, Odessa, Corpus Christi, Houston, um, soon to be San Antonio. Um, they bought a provider up in Oregon um, that was for sale, and they've launched another practice in kind of the Kansas City market. And, um, you know, I think that the thesis around volumes being driven by payers and new drugs in the pipeline is, has proven out. Um, and we haven't had to, you know, invest additional capital to, to achieve all of that. So it's been so far, so far, so good. That's awesome. Congratulations on that. I like, I like it when it actually works. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really yeah. good they, feeling. Can't say they uh, all do, but yeah, that one has, has worked out so far. Any other kind of portfolio company you go ahead. I mean, Ryan, you need to start pumping your book. I mean, everyone else does it on podcasts, so you should be able to do it too. I alluded to find help a little bit earlier in the, in the, in the social social services space. It's an interesting company that has this freemium model that uh, has that supplies data about the social services organizations in, in your neighborhood. The broader idea is that access to social services keeps people out of the hospital. If someone is homeless, they're going into the hospital. If someone uh, doesn't have access to food or um, a safe place, they'll end up in the hospital. And as a result, health plans and hospital systems are increasingly trying to connect their members and patients with these social services to lower the cost of care. And Aunt Bertha has a, um, a software solution that helps them do that. And you underwrote them in the Series A? Theirs was, I believe, a Series see at the time, but that was just because they had raised a, a few, you know, a few yeah. smaller rounds beforehand. That was the stage of stock, but not necessarily. Yeah. It what a typical company uh, would be a, a series B. Okay. And so they probably had substantial data already in their system and people using it when you came in. They did. They had a, a pretty broad customer base. And so we were able to feel comfortable that there was, you know, significant demand on both the health plan and hospital system side of things. And, um, you know, enough data while it was early to get a sense of customer retention and, and average contract size and, um, and, and feel pretty good about uh, the growth profile. So I'm wondering, and so what I'm thinking to myself is, um, if I, what did that company look like in its seed stage and its series A stage? And, and how did it, how did somebody, get comfortable underwriting this when the data most likely was not in there. And there was probably really bad gross margins because they probably manually connected people, right? Like they, they were the algorithm and um, their data was probably very spotty and, you know, that, I mean, dot, dot, dot. I mean, how, how do you think about that? Yeah. You know, I think the earlier you go, the more you probably have to rely on kind of market market, and, and thematic based investing and, um, you know, doing kind of more research, even if it's not a customer, but potential customers, Hey, is this something that you would be interested in? Here's how we think would think about an ROI for the solution. Is that how you would think about it as well? And then a lot of it, I think comes down to team as well. There's so much risk involved at that point that, um, any sort of kind of credibility to the team helps, helps you think, uh, get a bit more comfort. You talked about research and kind of trends and markets, and you said single digit kagers, right? You know, when it came to your infusion business, and it makes me think about, you know, all the reports that I read. How much stock do you put in growth rates with the, all the market and markets and, you know, type of reports that are out there? 
Because that's, you know, really, I mean, that's how if I'm writing a memo, (laughs) that's where the data I'm using. I'm just like, please give me as much free stuff as possible. I don't think I I say, oh, this is this report's got an 8%. Like, let's go, let's go fund this company. But um, the variance between uh, Mark report saying one or 2% versus 10, 11, 12 is fairly significant. And it's at least one signal. I think the other point is just like doing kind of your own work on on addressable market and how many folks could actually use this and how how much are they, what's their current uh, annual contract value is just a to me, bottoms better, up. Uh, uh, yeah, bottoms up approach is a, is a much better way to think through it, in, in my opinion. Yeah, no, that's that's how I think about it, too. You know, I kind of look at it from a bottoms up and tops down approach. Aunt Bertha, I mean, how how were they able, um, and if it's the secret sauce, don't, don't worry about it. Uh, but like, how did you get people or how did they get people to adopt their software? And on the on the hospital side, because, you know, I, I'm literally was just talking to a healthcare IT company before we jumped on this pod and Kager's there. It's a big problem. But the CFO is saying, what's the ROI? <laughs> you know, like and, and squeezing them on price. And you're telling me that people are dying in your hospital. It was a, a vendor management tool for um, for surgical tracking and, you know, keeping your 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 uh, implant reps accountable. And, you know, they're telling me about this giant, huge pain point where people are getting sued millions upon millions of dollars. And yet, you know, the, the CFO is incredibly resilient to try to implement a, uh, a platform and, and squeezing down on price. So, I mean, how do you think about, you know, sales cycles within healthcare and mitigating that? And, you know, when do you actually have a product market fit issue versus like, you know, I mean, I always hear, oh, it's a long sales cycle. Okay. Or like you're not good at selling it or you don't have product market fit, right? So, I mean, how do you think about that stuff? Yeah. You know, I think it um, it comes down to like, does it actually fit within the workflows that are a- actually happening? And can you make it faster and more efficient? And, um, and, and that solves two problems. One, it means that people will actually use it if you're doing a pilot. And two, if it's doing that, in theory, there should be less, less labor or headcount that's required to do those tasks. And that allows you to get through one of the many gates in the, you know, health system sales process, which is, you know, the financial side of things, it helps you sell ROI. And and then the other, the other side of it is, you know, ROI. And one of those levers is headcount management. And, and so if you're helping drive efficiency, that helps with that. And on the healthcare side of things, what companies kind of run into sometimes is the inability to either fit into the workflows or, sell an ROI that's actually valid, you know, you can validate beyond, you know, this will reduce, reduce readmissions, reduce readmissions 12 months from now. Um, that That's just a harder story, story to quantify. And so with, with an Aunt Bertha's point to your question, discharge manager, managers at health systems were already coordinating, um, hey, you know, it seems like you had a challenge finding housing um, uh, after you were discharged last time. Here's some services that we know in the area that we can help you help you find. And previously, that used to be a, a binder or you know a folder that they had, and and it would take them, and it was never up to date. And so Aunt Bertha kind of digitized that entire process and allowed them to send digital referrals and organize all of that information internally. Um, so it fit within the workflows, and then it helped make that kind of department much more efficient. And there is a, a real story on um, on folks, um, you know, not returning to the health system if, if they're given access to these resources. Yeah, and it, it, more so that it was. I mean, there were just really great case studies, right? There, yeah, there was great case studies at, at leading health systems, and 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 also I think there has just been an increased realization um, over the last few years about the importance of this topic, both at health plans and at health systems. Mm-hmm. So when looking at, at healthcare, like where do you feel like the biggest areas um, of opportunity are knowing how incredibly difficult this nut is to crack? So medics infusion is, is in the specialty drug space. And I think that there's still significant opportunity to address costs um, in that world. Um, medics is doing it by providing access to lower, lower um, cost of care sites. But these drugs cost a significant amount and, you know, a few people at an employer um, can significantly change the employer's healthcare budget for the year uh, if they go on to specialty drugs. And so helping employers manage that challenge, helping um, health plans manage that challenge, helping 
provide transparency around PBM uh, negotiations, who are the, which are the folks that basically are health plans for drug drug management for employers. Um, I think there's still significant opportunity to fix a, a problem that is driving healthcare costs um, across the industry uh, from a specialty drug standpoint. So that would be if I'm an employer and I'm self-insuring um, my employees, being able to make sure that my employees are not getting the most expensive drugs or expensive treatments. So really the employee is taking over your, your care management. In some ways, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I think maybe 20 years ago, employers employers were scared to death to say you don't have access to this drug or this provider. But now that healthcare costs have skyrocketed and continue to do so, and there's no end in sight, um, they're increasingly willing to steer or reduce access to a provider or a drug that is not providing the quality or that has a, you know, a cheaper substitute, like a generic drug. But why should that fall on the employer? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, why do, why does the employer have to do that? Others who could be incentivized to do that um, in the system may not always be incentivized to do that. And, you know, some would say that the, the health plan should be doing that. I think employers are going to increasingly hold health plans account- accountable to do so. Because they don't want their premiums, their side of the premiums to keep raising. That's right. That's right. right. And then what about the deductibles? Like, I mean, like, how is it, how are these deductibles like going up as high as they are? I mean, I was looking at a chart the other day and it looks like it's insanity. I mean, like, I think United Healthcare has grown faster than some of the new biggest tech companies on the planet. As healthcare costs have, have risen, driven by the market power at many healthcare systems, um, employers have tried to shift as much of those costs as they can on, onto their employees. And so you've seen the rise of high deductible health plans, particularly for young, healthy workers. Um, I think we've reached about as far as those high deductible health plans can, <laughs> right. can go. I think there's been as much uh, cost shifting as there can be, but um, and that's why kind of the next iteration of, of of cost management for the employers, I think, will increasingly be reduction in choice. Yeah. Okay. I think that I think that's right. I think that makes sense. And you know, it's on them to say, like, you know, you want cheaper insurance, you don't want to pay an eight thousand dollar deductible, right? You know. You know, if you sprain your ankle, then you can't have you you can either have access to everything and have it be expensive or you can have a little bit reduction in choice so that the folks that are negotiating on your behalf are able to do so. And that's what really brings down costs. Employee based cost control within healthcare, whether it be on an IT or a tech enabled. I got a question for you. So, you know, you look at, you know, healthcare services and you look at this, this space called tech enabled services. And um, a lot of people, I believe, don't know what a tech enabled service is and like what defines it, um, you know, a company with software versus with proprietary service. Um, than in a tech enabled service. So how do you think about, about that? So like an example would be if, if the, if the company's just giving you a, a, a login and password and, and then you're doing everything from, from then on out, like pure SaaS, if, if there's an, a software solution that's used internally by a vendor to help provide a service that is more efficient, uh, kind of think about that as tech enabled service. I'll, I'll give you an example. We invest in a company called CareLoop that provides um, uh, benefit to employers that helps with um, employees who are supporting aging loved ones or um, or children, or particularly children with special needs. And CareLoop is like is not a, a software as a service company. They they believe that you need to have you know humans helping assist employees with that with those challenges because every, every kind of scenario is, is highly unique. And so it, it requires a concierge kind of white glove offering. Now, care loops kind of uh, what they refer to as care coaches who help the employees. They have a, a software that they use to communicate and log, you know, documents and advanced care planning and provide content and resources to the employees. And so there's kind of a tech enabled element that utilizes care loop software, but they always will have a human element to help them. Yeah, the, 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 there's a cost of good of a human in order to produce the value that they were sold on. Exactly. From that perspective, the intrinsic value, of course, is the growth and the cash flows. Is how do you look at like just the human capital talent and, and the value drivers? It certainly is more challenging to 
have required to stack staff up, you know, a, a large kind of human capital intensive organization, um, particularly in this labor environment um, versus building software and then being able to use that, you know, via the cloud and deploy that across the U.S. without additional kind of labor. If you can't sell the software without the human element because kind of that piece is required, you probably need to go the human way. Right, exactly. You know, solve the problem first and then worry about the margin optimization later. Exactly. I mean, so that really sounds like a full-end tech-enabled service. What do you think about like the staffing comp, like the healthcare staffing companies that are essentially just, you know, uh, staffing companies that, you know, they can, you know, onboard nurses, right? And, you know, doctors and stuff. And then they've got, you know, a repository of them and they can ship and they can schedule, you know, the, the people, you know, because I look at services like that and I'm, you know, I really look at gross margin. And if I like look at a comparable and say like, okay, well, their gross margin really isn't any better than a publicly traded company. That's just a traditional staffing company. You know, I really look at the technology, like you either have to sell your product as a premium to the rest of the market, or you have to have such good efficiencies that, you know, that you can actually deliver the product at a much, you know, higher penetration than the rest of the market. You have to provide value add beyond just matching or you'll end up kind of like an Uber Lyft scenario where it's a race to the bottom from a margin standpoint. In your example, I think, you know, a value add could be, hey, here's a scheduling tool that will integrate with your solutions that you don't have to worry about that. Or, hey, based on your claims data or schedules, we expect you to, you know, using our demand forecasting analytics for your labor work, uh, you're going to need to hire X uh, nurses next week and uh, for these time slots. You know that helps maybe a nurse manager better better manage her her workforce and, and 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 labor, but if it's just hey I need a slot filled today and I'm gonna look at looking you know in this app I think I think that's a, that's a tougher solution. Yeah, it's a tougher solution. The moat's really not there, and the margins are ultimately going to get compressed. Does a contract need to be recurring in order to be a tech enabled service in your mind? I think that there can be tech enabled services without recurring revenue. All of the kind of virtual care, te- like Teladoc models, I would argue, are tech-enabled services. Teladoc has a recurring revenue model uh, with employers, but there's also direct-to-consumer models um, like a HEMS or a row that are tech-enabled services that have someone on the other side of the computer screen that are connected via technology. But those are, you know, pay-per-use. Um, y- yes and no is, is, is a good way to answer. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for giving us all that background and how you think about kind of the world and healthcare and the different, you know, I think the big elephant in the room right now with all the investors is um, especially investors that are less, you know, venture or venture capital type where, you know, binary outcomes, let's have, you know, really good returns, but let's not try to have too many zeros. How do you, um, how are you looking at today's marketplace in, in terms of valuation and all the capital that's out there? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I love that sigh. <laughs> that, that, that sigh was so real, man. I mean, it was just, it was real. I like it. Yeah. I, look, I, I think everyone kind of thinks similarly about it. There's been a just an incredible amount of funding that's been raised. I mean, particularly in my world in digital health, I think the amount of capital doubled um, uh, last year versus the record the year before. So you've just yeah. never seen anything like it. And in healthcare IT, there's not a crazy amount of huge exits. And so just doing the math, some of that capital will not yield high returns. Why um, is that? Why aren't there giant exits in healthcare? I think part of it is the market is just smaller. Um, you know, you can only sell to so many health plans. You can only sell to so many um, Interesting. hospitals yeah. versus, you know, selling a cybersecurity solution that is applicable to anyone who uses the internet. Um, yeah, or drugs, right? Or, or it's like, you or know, like the anyone think- who takes medicine. Yeah, and right. I think that's part of it. There, there won't be as many exits. And, and but I, I don't think that we've seen, you've seen public markets come down um, for some of the high growth, high burn companies. Um, we haven't seen it really yet that much on at our stage, kind of Series A, Series B. We've heard inklings kind of from the later growth equity firms that. Uh, 
that there has been maybe some valuation pullback. It feels like maybe the circus circus will end over the next 12 months um, with just because there people will eventually realize there's too much capital flowing to ideas or projects that that won't generate returns on that capital. But it will take a, lo- a long time for people to realize that because so much capital has been raised. Um, Is that new funds or just bigger existing funds? I think it's a combination of new funds, bigger existing funds, as well as investors who are not traditional venture investors, hedge funds, um, corporate funds that have been launched. It, there's yeah, just- these hedge funds are the killing us, man. Like they're absolutely killing us. I I literally, I'm an LP in a a really great hedge fund and they called me to pitch me their late stage growth fund. And I literally almost hung up the phone on them. I was so pissed. I was like, literally, like, do you realize that you were like causing the biggest problem? And the fact that you just want to jump, you know, because there's alpha there and compete against the now 20 soft banks, you're high. Yeah. If you think I'm putting a dollar in that. From what, from my understanding is that you've seen some of those, leave the private markets a little bit over the, uh, over the last few months um, get, as the public markets have snapped back to reality a little bit um, sooner than the private markets. So I think hopefully you'll see some of that leave a little. We'll see. Yeah. Well, I think they had to, right? And I think, I think they had to pull back because they had limited partners in the hedgy world and limited partners, the same limited partners in the late stage growth. And it's a conflicting story if you're selling, you know, on the on the on the public side, but buying on the on the private side. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's it's a really mixed message, and you know, I really think that the biggest risk you can take right now in venture capital is the soup, this you know, the super earliest stages, because a you can be default dead for not having product market fit, and b you're paying a multiple that's you know, I mean, it's. I mean, it's not even a multiple of revenue because they don't really have anything substantial. You know, now we're at like, you know, 10 to 20, right, on seed deals and um, valuations, not rounds. And, you know, the late stage is, you know, well, my my investment thesis is, man, I really hope I don't overpay here, <laughs> right? Like when I go public and um, everything else in between is hodgepodge of venture capitalists, family offices, and now these, you know, you know very efficient Debt vehicles. Are you seeing the debt vehicles kind of bumping up against you at all? Like the pipes? Um, we we haven't we haven't seen that come on uh, on our end or with in our portfolio. We haven't. Good. What is uh, getting you excited right now besides infusion therapy? <laughs> <laughs> um, besides bags of medicine getting pumped into old people. What else is really getting? What else is really exciting you these days? We've seen some interesting things on the work, workforce management. Obviously, for for health systems, you talked about it a little bit with the employer uh, nurse matching solutions, but actually, software solve trying to solve the problem for these health systems and not provide kind of a band aid. Whether it's employee engagement software or additional supplemental benefits for for um, for nurses, I think there's. Um, I think if you talk to health systems, that's by far the number one problem. So, I'm trying Turnover. to find something kind of in that space. Yeah. Yeah. Turnover and staffing, I think is huge. I'm, I'm seeing, a, I've seen more HR tech than I think I ever have right now. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and I think everyone's buying something to try it out, you know, but it's going to be curious because I don't know what the, I don't think the market knows what it wants yet. I, yeah, I, I, I agree. It, it, it's just such a hard problem to solve that it's hard to provide enough ROI to just be able to sell through that, the health system sales cycle. I think the other thing like around labor is just on the employer side, how hard it's been to both recruit and retain, particularly with, um, you know, diverse and, and inclusive workforces. That has been a challenge with employers. And I think you'll see additional benefits that you might not have seen um, offered by employers. Okay, cool. And then uh, what are you what are you reading right now? He's just, looking at his desk. <laughs> I was like, I just, I just read this white paper on. <laughs> no, I just finished this awesome book called um, "A Gentleman in Moscow." That uh, was, a, it's kind of a fiction of uh, from Russia in the early 21st century, and then um, now about to start reading World War II book. Um, before that, I read if if we if we want to do the like cool VC book before Gentleman in Moscow, I read. Uh, <laughs> I read uh, Signal in the Noise, which I thought was pretty good um, by Nate Silver. 
You got to have a cool VC book. Yeah. Yeah. I think I get a quarter of a way through like the cool VC books and, you know, I just put them down. My ADD is like, it's so high right now and I'm just getting like, I'm just like a really bad phone addict. So it's hard for me to stay focused on a, on an analog piece of paper. Yeah. And it's like five months go by and you're like, you know, I'm on chapter four. Um, (laughs) I know. Exactly. Uh, Who do you like to follow online? Um, one awesome follow on Twitter, uh, especially if you're interested in healthcare and healthcare policy and drug pricing, um, former professor of mine at Kellogg, um, and Craig Garthwaite. Um, whoa, whoa. You were a Chicago guy. I did. I did go to Kellogg. Yep. Uh, wow. I, man, I should have looked at your LinkedIn a little bit harder. You know what I mean? You had so many jobs and experiences. So it was hard to get down to the education <laughs> piece. Were you fired a lot or, you know, do you just kind of move around a lot? Just two other jobs, just two other jobs before this. But, um, but yeah, he's uh, one of the leading kind of drug pricing and policy experts and just a great follow on Twitter. Does, uh, does he get hated on like everybody else in Twitter? I don't get Twitter. He typically takes side of high drug prices are not bad because they uh, drive innovation and access to uh, future drugs for patients struggling from diseases. Yeah, oh, I'm I, sure that goes over really which well. Which I broadly agree with. Uh, but, <laughs> Wait, so um, you're saying that high drug prices are good because it, it creates innovation, are you saying? Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's, you can see how it's an easy argument to, to um, right. vilify. If you, read the, if you read the first half and, right. and not finish, <laughs> right, which is anyone's attention span. Cool. And so how can people get in touch with you? Um, you know, I got a hot healthcare service, tech-enabled software company. What's the best way to reach out to you, follow you, you know, learn more about you and Nora Mosley? Probably go to Nora Mosley's website and through there, like our, myself and our team's kind of LinkedIn. We, we've got contact us through our website. Uh, but yeah, reaching out to me via LinkedIn is probably the, the best route. All right. That's Ryan Collins, everybody from Nora Mosley. We covered you know, different topics around healthcare, healthcare IT, behavioral change, you know, what constitutes a platform along with underwriting deals in the kind of the series A and series B stage. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And um, I will talk to you later, my man. Thanks, David. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.